You're listening to Westside Church. For more information, visit us at westsideinfo.com. Morning, church. I'll talk a little bit quiet, less less loud. Nice job. Uh, thanks, tech guys and sound people. We really appreciate all that you do. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. As uh, please keep Chris and Ty in your prayers um, for this because it is a, a heavy burden. It's a heavy task to ask, and we have, uh, as an eldership, we've been spending months, years, <laughs> uh, contemplating, praying, asking the Lord for who it is to, that we should add on to this team, and so we don't take this lightly. This isn't some kind of flippant choice or, you know, best friend, uh, you know, kicking the, picking the best person for the uh, uh, kickball league or yeah. kickball ter- tournament, but uh, that's, uh, that's not how we choose, choose things here, so it seems good to us in the Holy Spirit, so we're presenting it to you as the body. Uh, to keep them in prayer, and again, please, uh, please be praying for them. Uh, I want to take a, a moment, as we've seen outside, um, a little bit of that smoke uh, from the fires down south. I just want to pray for that and for those uh, people that are impacted with that. So, Father, uh, we ask that you would um, put this fire out, yeah. that you would miraculously today send rain to that land to put it out. God, that those families that uh, may be evacuating, God, that you would comfort them. You would guide them, provide for them miraculously, that there be wonderful testimonies of your goodness and grace. And God, as we see uh, the smoke in the air, God, that you would remind us that this world is temporary, uh, that in the end everything will be burned up before the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, And just help us keep that mindset, God, an eternal mindset, perspective that this is not uh, the end game of our lives here on this earth, but we are for something far greater and far better. And we just look forward to that time. But in that meantime, Lord, we do ask for miracles, and we hear that today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. amen. So, yeah, as you see in your notes, you get the Matt Frost uh, special edition notes. That's not a typo. We didn't run out of ink uh, for your notes. Those blank pages are there for you to capture uh, your own notes um, and as such. So, I tell you, it is a real privilege and honor to share the Word of God um, the Word is an active, it's alive, it's powerful. It's described in the book of Hebrews as a double-edged sword, and there is no blunt object at all <laughs> contained in the words of God. It discerns all of our thoughts, it discerns all of our intentions, and turns and peers into the depths of our heart, and it's very humbling. <laughs> uh, it's been a... Um, I keep telling my wife that each time I come to present and, and, and preach or teach that I go through a slight existential crisis through this. And it's because I'm hearing looking at the words, saying, is this really reflective of who I am and who, uh, that am I living these truths out? Uh, and so I just praise God for his incredible mercy and incredible grace that he's not chosen to use perfect people to lead his church. Uh, he's not chosen us as perfect people to be representatives of him and for the kingdom, and I praise him uh, for that. So as uh, we're going to continue in our series on foundations, uh, looking at the foundational elements and the truths of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, that as we grasp onto these truths together as a community, as a household of faith, it will enable us 
as a family to stand firm together on our rock, the solid one who never changes, the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ, and to proclaim his message of salvation to the world that is lost in darkness, that is full of decay. And so we begin with taking a look at what Jesus has taught us to learn from our master teacher, from whom all life has come from and where we gain our eternal life from. So we're going to be looking at what Jesus taught us and what it's called the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be taking a look at what Jesus said through the gospel, the good news, from the viewpoint of the Apostle Matthew, who again is part of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, just giving us different perspectives, different views of the work and life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And Matthew introduces us to Jesus through genealogy. And I know a lot of us have a hard and a difficult time reading through these long lists of people's names we can't even pronounce and thinking, when's the end and end? But I would encourage you, as you go through these genealogies, these are listed for a reason, to provide us with an expectation of the coming one, the coming skull-crushing redeemer seed, the one that had been promised to us way back in Genesis chapter 3. All that hope, this list is looking for that. And what Matthew in introducing us to Jesus is showing us that he is in the line of David through his earthly father, Joseph, telling him that he will be on the line of David, the one that God promised King David that there will be someone on the throne forever. Matthew goes on to continue, he records his birth, Jesus' baptism, his temptation in the Judean wilderness, and the calling of the first disciples of Peter and Andrew. And we get and we see then in Matthew, it says, so his frame, fame, Jesus, spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. And so this sermon that we, that we have captured for us here is on the mount, is, the most, is, is one of the most beautiful sermons captured. Uh, it's extremely hard-hitting. Uh, it's theologically complex. Uh, and in this, there are the truths that Jesus calls us to be, to call us to live. What are we to, and how are we to live? What does it mean to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven? What are those traits that we are called not to be in the world, but we are called to be in it, and how are we to live our lives in, such, in light of that? So let's read through the passage together. Uh, I'm on page 962. Am I, Bob? So we're looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 uh, to 16. <laughs> so I'm reading from the English Standard Version. And Jesus is saying, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So when we come to any passage of Scripture, anytime that we're reading it at home or even as we're listening to it as a sermon here, it's best for us to have a, a good understanding of the context of it. 
the context of the passage, because you see we're right in the first third of this chapter 5. And for us to correctly understand what is being said, we must try and understand what is before and after the passage that, that we're reading, as well as trying to understand the context of how it fits within the book that the passage that we're in, and how it fits, if we can, into both the Old and the New Testaments and Scripture as a whole. For a text without a context is just a pretext. And so avoid to, have, to avoid having a pretext, we must therefore have the context. So therefore, the three most important aspects of any Bible study are context, context, and context. Great. So this will guide us as we determine who the audience is, who is speaking, where are they, and what is being said. So these elements of context of where they are now, just they appear to us in chapter, uh, verse 1. Chapter 5, let me scoot back. I'm going to pull this up. I'm in. Uh, and chapter 5, verse 1, it says that Jesus is sitting down. He sees the crowds. He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them. Here begins this sermon, the sermon on the mount. Jesus' sermon, if you were to read it in the English Standard Version, takes about 12 to 15 minutes if you were to read it out loud. It's chapters 5 through 7. And the original audience of the Sermon on the Mount are the followers of Jesus Christ, both those who are curious about who he is because of what he has done, and those that have already left everything to become fishers of men that Jesus has called them to be. We know this is the case because the context of the sermon at the very end in chapter 7, verses 28 to 29, says, And when Jesus finished these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And so the location of the sermon is to kind of give us a visual clue of the context of where is it that they are. Because it says it's just a mount. It doesn't tell us exactly, other than it's somewhere within the Sea of Galilee. Uh, for those that have not yet been to Israel, uh, the Sea of Galilee is very, you can picture it in your mind, is like the size of Lake Tahoe. Uh, very about that same size, almost the same shape, uh, and dotted all around the shorelines uh, in the or surrounding hills are old volcanoes. So there is lots of mounts, and Scripture doesn't tell us exactly where it is, and I think it's probably a good thing, um, because we probably would love to go to this place and, as man, uh, would probably want to worship that same spot. And so I think it's not... The, the point is that not where it was, but what was said and what was done. Uh, so, but to give us some kind of clue for those who haven't been to Israel yet, um, picture number one is looking at... This is on the north side of the lake. Uh, if you're looking out towards the lake, uh, to the left would be the city of Capernaum. And this is the traditional site of where this uh, Sermon on the Mount took place. Uh, picture number two... This is kind of my preference of where I think it may have took place. It's on the top, on the top of Mount Arbel. Uh, it's a huge mount that juts out that can be seen all around the lake. And you can see looking down, uh, the middle part of the picture is outcropping. Right down on the other side is the town of uh, Magdala, uh, the city of where Mary of Magdalene was from. Uh, Capernaum is that kind of top left kind of curve, if you can see it in the back. So it's just a real beautiful, idyllic setting for this Wherever it took place, somewhere, just get a mind, a picture in your mind of somewhere around the lake. You can see the lake and hear it. Must have been a very beautiful, beautiful time. So in the sermon, 
that Jesus gives. Christ emphasizes the character traits of true believers. And all of this is in the preface or the intro of a sermon about how to live as kingdom dwellers. These are what we have called as the Beatitudes, that those of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven, they are those that are poor in spirit, they're mourners, they're meek, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, they that are merciful, they are pure in hearts, and they are the peacemakers. So all of these attributes are citizens of the kingdom of heaven will ultimately provoke anger and resentment in the world as those who live out these truths and these realities. We know this. Why? Because Jesus tells us so. In Matthew 5, 10 to 11, it says the final trait of the kingdom of citizens of heaven is that they will be persecuted because of their righteousness. Though at times they will be hated by the world, and Christ tells us that believers are necessary despite this coming reality, despite the fact that the church will be persecuted, not just made fun of, but there will be an utter hatred, and they will want to kill us, and they will want to remove us from the face of the earth. And Jesus says, do not be afraid. And so Jesus then turns to what we are, who we are as kingdom dwellers. In verse 13, he says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. From the context, again, we gather that the you here are all the followers of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, Jesus gave this sermon in order for us to know, again, what it means to be a follower of him. He starts off with saying that we are salt. A lot tomes and sermons and countless articles have been written about what it means to be salt and possibly how the original audience might have understood Jesus as what he meant when he said that we are to be the salt of the earth. Was it to be understood in the sense that the followers of Jesus Christ, are we to be like preservatives as this was done at that time to draw, draw out the moisture that was within food so that bacteria would not grow was it to flavor foods? Did these disciples think primarily that salt is providing seasoning for the foods, to bring out the different flavors in an otherwise tasteless meal? Was it for fertilizing the ground, helping to grow a better yield of crops, or to kill the weeds that were left in the field? Did these disciples, did these crowds, who would have been Jewish, most likely familiar with Torah, or the first five books of the Bible, think about the association of salt had with covenantal sacrifices, like that which God commanded in Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13, where God commanded and said, you shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering, and with all your offerings you shall offer salt. If we were to take just one of these potential ideas and emphasize it as, ah, that's exactly what Jesus Christ meant, and that one item only, I feel that we will miss out completely on what Jesus is telling us. We should consider every one of these attributes of what it means to be salt, all at the same time. All of these encompassing aspects of the common salt should be thought of. Jesus is the skillful communicator, and he presents to us, using that common, simple item, necessary for life itself and communicates the truth that as his followers, we are to be distinctive. 
Because distinctiveness is an identifier of those who are of the kingdom of heaven. See, just about anyone can tell when salt is present. I most certainly can when Margot and I go to In-N-Out and she empties out the entire salt packet on all of our shared french fries. It does not go unnoticed when salt is added to the meal, and sometimes some of us will notice when it is not added to the meal. But all of these attributes of salt should be in mind when we think about this metaphor. We are called as followers of Jesus Christ to be preservers, to be preservers of the truth in a world that is full of decay and death. We are called to be the flavor of the wonderful and awesome things that God has done in our lives as we share with others about how he is working in our lives. And a great testimony to that is the people and the whole team on our Mexico team. They were real, true identifiers of being salt down in Mexico. Preserving, showing, and being the wonderful things, <laughs> proclaiming the attitudes of the kingdom of heaven. And we should, we have to be, we are called to be, and we should therefore act as salt in a day and age in which so many things can be and should be deemed as tasteless. We should strive to bring the flavor in our lives out in such a way that others see it and get drawn in by that flavor that we're providing. Jesus says in Matthew 5.13, the second half, But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So with regards to salt losing its inherent characteristic of being salty, do not take this as some kind of passage as a vague reference of losing your salvation. If you were to just read this, this text in and of itself outside of the context, that's what one could lead to understand the passage to be. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. Again, what it's pointing out is that if one loses the character of salt, loses its distinctiveness, one loses the effect, effectiveness of our purpose as citizens of heaven, as we live as sojourners on this earth. We lose the saltiness by becoming contaminated by the things of this world. And this loss is what is counted really as foolishness. Again, I don't have to remind you is that life is so brief. It is but a vapor, and it goes by so quickly. But in this brief moment that we have, this time before we step into eternity and see our Messiah face to face, we have a job to do. And so as salt, we need to remain salty until we are called to that dwelling place that Jesus has gone home to prepare for us. And so to remain salty, we need to be acutely aware of the things of this world that compete for our attention. The lust of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, the distractions that will ultimately deaden our passion for living for Christ. So when salt tries to be conformed by the kingdom of the world, that salt will lose their distinctiveness and the potential to impact the decay and the darkness from which the world is passing away from. If we fail to be salty, we have lost our purpose. We, as disciples of Christ, are called the salt of the earth. And if we lose our saltiness, again, it's equivalent to becoming foolish. Foolish in the sense that we are no longer living the truth, the reality as being citizens of another kingdom. It would be, in effect, to lose that identity. But if salt has lost its taste, Jesus goes on, how shall its saltiness be restored? And so these words, has lost its taste, alludes to something that is impossible. 
very similar to the image that Jesus uses uh, about the camel going through the eye of the needle. It carries with that same idea that this is impossible. It is foolishness to believe that. That salt cannot lose its taste, but it can lose its distinctiveness. Losing the distinctiveness of salt or becoming less salty, R.T. France in his commentary in the book of Matthew said, the rabbis commonly use salt as an image for wisdom, which may explain why the Greek word represented by lost its taste actually means become foolish. A foolish disciple has no influence on the world. A true believer cannot lose his or her essential nature as salt, since Christ dwells within us. That we can be much guaranteed. It is then quite foolish to answer this rhetorical question by Christ, but how shall its saltiness be restored? For those that are familiar with salt or the common uh, element of sodium chloride, right? it's a very stable element. It'd be kept in a jar for years and still remain salty. So how can this salt lose its saltiness? Is there something that the creator of salt doesn't know about the compound that he created? <laughs> we know, again, that only way that salt loses its saltiness is by contamination. We are to be the salt of the earth. We should not be of the earth. Being of the earth is what contaminates us. When once we are contaminated, we lose our effectiveness by getting mixed in with the things of this world. Those things of the con contamination, what are they? they? Well, they're becoming friends with the world. They're becoming stained by the world. Then loving the world, and then ultimately being fully conformed by this world. Where a believer then is no longer identifiable as being any different than the world. If you're worried about whether or not you've lost your saltiness, I encourage you just to take a moment. Ask God now for forgiveness for whatever has contributed to your contamination of your salt. And then once you ask for forgiveness in that, walk out in the freedom that he freely gives to you. So often the enemy will try to persuade you that no, God doesn't forgive you. You have to do this, this, and this in order to be forgiven. But Christ, when you ask Christ and ask him to be completely forgiven, he gives it freely and willingly. Do not let the enemy con convince you otherwise. He will then restore that to you and make you effective for his kingdom. Jesus then moves on from talking about us as being salt to us as being light. There is a shift from what we are called to be internally to one that is now evident and seen by everyone in the world. Verse 14 says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. We are called to be a light to a world that has perceived itself, has declared itself to be, oh, so enlightened. So seemingly enlightened that it has blinded itself so much that it's now staring into the dark abyss, blindingly searching for truth and searching for the answer to which each of us is truly longs for, a relationship with our Creator. We are to shine forth our light through the light of Christ, who has lit and continuously keeps our flame lit. For Christ is the source of our light. For John 8 says, Jesus is preeminently the light of the world. And then as Isaiah had prophesied of the servant that would come, that this bright new reality has now appeared on the scene. And it was revealed, as the prophets proclaimed, about the coming Messiah, 
that was shown to us in Luke chapter 2. When Jesus, as an infant, is brought to the temple, where Simeon proclaimed this as he took the little Jesus up into his arms and said, Blessed God, he blessed God and said, Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. But now that Jesus has gone and has ascended to heaven, he has passed that role on to us as his followers. When both Paul and Barnabas spoke out in Acts chapter 13, saying, For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That is who we are. We are salt and light. Again, notice what Jesus says here. You are, twice in this passage, he's telling us this. What we are before what we are to do. He's calling us being is preceding our action here in this sermon. Our being described as salt and light, both of which are in the present tense, meaning that's a constant action that we are called to be continuously salty and continually light-bearing. We are part of this whole grand plan of salvation that was set in part before the creation of the world. And this plan to bring the message of salvation doesn't just belong to the TV evangelical superstars or the evangelical superstars on YouTube or TikTok or Instagram or whatever your, your famous uh, or the cool social media platform is. It doesn't belong just to them. It belongs to each one of us as his followers. Each of us as a grain of salt and each of us as a ray of light, rubbing against the corruption of this world, hoping to provide a thirst for righteousness and to bring our light shining, illuminating the hearts and minds of the message of the great I am, Jesus Christ, who is the true light of the world. Amen. Therefore, we act in such a way because of who we are as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We each are called not only to have the influence of salt, but at the same time, we are to be extremely visible. Salt is unable to change the decay back to health. It can only hinder or pause that decay. Light is able to illuminate and expose the decay for others to see what's causing that corruption. So our function and role as believers is to let the light of the gospel shine in our lives, that through our speech and through our actions and a proclamation of the gospel, that we'll expose this to the lost and dying world. Amen. We are not called to keep our salt in our homes. We're not to keep it in a jar tucked away in the pantry for us to keep in a door and look and use any time for our own good. No, we are to use it for the world. In the same way for the light. Our light is not just kept for the us and ours only. It's for the world to see. Why? Because Jesus says in verses 15 and 16, Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And he gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This we are to do in order for the world to see our good works. Now, works is not for salvation. This is not attainable. There's nothing in here that we can work towards to gain salvation. That's not what he's speaking to. For our light to shine before others means not, again, sorry, I lost my train of thought. For our light to shine before others means not just, again, for those within the household of faith. 
Right? We're not to just to keep our light shine in this house only. It's supposed to go out into the world, out beyond these doors, and out for the others to see. What Jesus tells us about who we are comes just again after the Beatitudes. And it could lead some to think that, man, those monastic monks, they really had it, didn't they? They knew the way to be salt and light out in the desert by themselves. However, Jesus tells us that is the opposite of what he's called us to do. We are not called to live our lives in solitude, outside of community. He's in the metaphor of us calling to be the salt of the earth is that we will only be effective as long as we mix with those of the earth, to be part of it, but to be so completely different than the world that they notice it, that they notice that there is something different about who we are, that in that they see our works, that they, that they see our resolve to resist the things of this earth, the things that are not part of the kingdom of God. And scripture is absolutely so beautiful, I don't, don't have to remind you of that fact, but that it just weaves in together so beautifully. That if you were to think back about Daniel, the prophet Daniel, the book of Daniel, you'll see how this is lived out, the resolve to resist the things of the world. So real brief background in the book of Daniel. Prior to the destruction of Jerusalem and the captivity of the southern kingdom, we are told that King Nebuchadnezzar marched into the land and carried away some of the royal family nobility back into Babylon. This is back in 605 BC. Daniel and others then were taken for the sole purpose of serving King Nebuchadnezzar in his court. We're told that this training took three years. But in this, in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, we are told that he, Daniel, would not defile himself with the food from the king. He resolved himself. He set in his heart not to eat that food. This rejection of the king's food could have really brought some harsh punishment. However, Daniel resolved to resist. Of course, everyone else around him was doing it. They were eating it. They were partaking it. The peer pressure to continue to do what everyone else was doing would have enticed him. But Daniel resolved to resist. And we are told that God, as a result of the good works of Daniel, as he resolved to resist, that God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians, all the enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. Daniel's good works were done in order to display and point to God and to bring him glory. And this is, you see this vividly and captured all throughout the rest of the book in Daniel. We see that in this book, that even though the Babylonians came and changed his name, they could not change his character. He could not change who he is and who he followed. His resolve to resist, to not be contaminated, and lose his saltiness and his light is a beautiful example of how each of us is called to resolve to resist. The outcome of Daniel's heart leads the king of Babylon to give glory to God. Daniel's good works led King Nebuchadnezzar to proclaim this, to make a decree recorded for us in chapter 4 of Daniel. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples and nations and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. 
It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, his dominion endures from generation to generation. This is the most excellent example of letting your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So jumping way forward, now back to our passage here in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus tells us that our good works, what they are to be, and how we are able to identify if the works that we are doing are the type that clearly identify us as being citizens of of the kingdom. The kinds of deeds that enable light to be seen and the effect of salt felt are elaborated in the course, the rest of the whole sermon that follows from Matthew 5 to Matthew chapter 7. And every single one of these attributes, these attitudes, are all pertaining to our heart. To make the best use of our time, we're called to get rid of the fillers that are not technically bad in our lives, maybe not considered sin, because Paul says all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. And so I'd encourage you to think about the things in your life that possibly are fillers that could possibly lead to contamination to your saltiness if left fully unchecked. To take an inventory throughout this next week as to what we are spending our time on. Is that time that we're spending bringing glory to God or is it solely to satisfy me? Every one of these aspects, these identifiers of the kingdom dwellers are given to us to show how to faithfully live out the commandments, the things that God has called us to be, to live out the righteousness of God. It's to be felt by the world through our saltiness and light-bearing. Paul tells us in his letter to the church in Philippi what we are called to, that as we go about our lives, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. So when the world cheats and dishonest, is being dishonest, we as believers must have integrity. When the world is is cursing and it's swearing, we as believers must only seek to speak edifying words. And the world enjoys ungodly entertainment. We as believers must seek to enjoy only those things that glorify God and bless others. If we are just like the world, we're only further its decay. So lastly, this passage talks about the works that we are to do is to bring glory to our Father who is in heaven. This is the very first time in the gospel that God has called our Father. A usage that will occur 44 times throughout the book of Matthew and 16 times just in the Sermon of the Mount. In the New Testament, through the works of Jesus Christ, the result of his death and resurrection brings us and gives us a privilege to call Almighty God, the creator of the universe, our Father, our Abba, in the most personal sense We can cry out to him at any time without worrying of interrupting him or annoying him. This is really quite remarkable, that we can have a personal, imminent, a closeness with the Father. This is the very same one that the prophet Isaiah explained to us who he is. In Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15, Heavenly Father, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity who inhabits eternity I just can't wrap my mind around it whose name is holy 
He says, I dwell in a high and holy place. And then the Father goes on, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. See, the world that we're presently living in doesn't need more of itself. It needs something far more distinctive, and ultimately it needs Christ. But Christ has chosen to use us, that as we live out our lives and speak the gospel message, that it will point the world to him. We cannot be content with simply knowing that we are salt and knowing that we are light and keeping it to ourselves. We need to be shaken. We need to be spilled out. We need to be poured out. We need to have our lives dissolve for the sake of the kingdom. Because we are called to live a life of such distinctiveness that that is the type of life that Christ died for us to have. So let us shake and let us shine for Christ every day to express the love of Christ while we're here on this earth. I'll close the letter uh, to the church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It says, Finally, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, each one of you know how to control his or her body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgresses and wrongs his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, and disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So brothers and sisters, as we eagerly wait the return of Christ, as we, our cry of Maranatha, Lord, come quickly, let us resolve to be salty Christians. Yeah. Let us resolve to be light Christians as we live as citizens of heaven. Yeah. Amen?